You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello to you all. I want to welcome you all. Uh, I am Eve Patton and I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, this building which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And I'm very pleased to welcome all of you, particularly to welcome uh, distinguished guests, our friends from uh, the Palestine Mission uh, to Ireland. And I know that the ambassador hopes to join us a little bit later on, uh, so uh, we look forward to seeing her. In the Trinity Longroom Hub, we support and we showcase research that's done across our partner schools in the arts and humanities. But we also host every year a number of distinguished international research scholars. Uh, and uh, back in 2022, uh, Rashid Khalidi, this evening's guest speaker, came to us in that capacity uh, to work on a very special research project looking at the parallels in the colonial administration of Palestine and Ireland and uh, researching the way in which that story uh, created what he talks about in the Hundred Years' War on Palestine as a shared playbook in terms of colonial authoritarian systems. Um, and that research was of great interest to a lot of us here in Trinity and beyond in Dublin. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Rashid back to the Trinity Longroom Hub to speak this evening. Um, he's going to be introduced properly in a second to you. Uh, but I, I just will also say that this event has been organised in partnership with our colleagues at UCD. And uh, my gratitude to Robert Goworth of the UCD Centre for War Studies, and also William Mulligan, who's the head of history at UCD. And William is going to introduce uh, Rashid this evening and also chair the questions afterwards. So please, as always, a reminder, if you wouldn't mind making sure that your mobile phones are off. And uh, now please relax and I will hand over to William Mulligan to introduce our speaker. Well, uh, thanks very much, uh, Eva. Thanks very much for the invitation. And it's a pleasure to be here tonight and uh, to have this opportunity to uh, introduce uh, Professor uh, Khalidi. Uh, Professor Khalidi is the Edward Said uh, Chair or a Professor of Modern Arab Studies at uh, Columbia University. And he's uh, one of the foremost uh, international experts on the history of the uh, Middle East. Uh, he's written uh, eight monographs uh, on the uh, topic uh, with a considerable focus on the Cold War, the United States, uh, and its role in the making and breaking, uh, perhaps breaking of peace uh, in the uh, Middle East in the uh, 20th uh, century. Uh, he was educated at uh, Yale University where he got his BA uh, and then he uh, moved to uh, Oxford where he completed his DPhil. Uh, he's taught at uh, many of the uh, leading institutions uh, in the United States, Chicago, Georgetown, uh, and Columbia. Uh, and of course, he's had uh, visiting uh, fellowships and researchships at some of the uh, most illustrious institutions around the globe, including here at uh, Trinity College. Um, uh, but he's here uh, tonight uh, to talk to us uh, about his eight monographs, his three edited collections, his role in setting up uh, the Journal of Palestine, Palestine uh, Studies, uh, not uh, this uh, tremendous oeuvre uh, 
that he's generated uh, over a long and industrious, uh, prolific uh, and insightful career. Uh, he's here tonight to talk to us about his most recent work, uh, The 100 Years War on Palestine. Uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, reading it and, and thinking about it. And uh, it raises uh, issues that are uh, germane, uh, not just to the specific region, uh, but I think germane uh, to uh, societies around the globe, because it raises questions about uh, how we fight uh, together uh, and how we uh, live together as a community. How do we do politics in new ways? Uh, there's a number of things uh, that struck me. I'm sure other things will strike uh, other readers of the book. Uh, in particular, uh, I found a very powerful book and a powerful argument uh, that located uh, the establishment of uh, the State of Israel as part of a wider uh, project of the European colonial settler movements. Uh, so in this sense, locating uh, the, the foundation and establishment of the State of Israel uh, in ways that uh, would be germane to uh, experts on the history of Australia, the American West. Uh, and I think that's a, an, an interesting uh, and an important claim to make. Uh, secondly, uh, he argues uh, that it's a war. Uh, this is not nation building, state building, regeneration. Uh, this is a war uh, against uh, the, uh, principally against the uh, Arab uh, inhabitants of, of uh, Palestine. And that again uh, brings to mind these uh, comparative issues that are uh, so important to historians, uh, you know, thinking of the, the frontier wars in Australia, the wars uh, in New Zealand in the uh, 19th century, uh, the, the wars uh, in uh, the American and indeed the uh, Canadian West. So uh, this, this idea of warfare, I think, is very powerful. Uh, and then I think the book, uh, for those of you who've read it, you already have noted this, it's infused with, uh, with, with personal history. And uh, this brought to mind a, a comment of a colleague of mine that the, uh, the best histories are like the best novels. Uh, they have to have something of us uh, in them. Uh, in, in other words, this, this kind of idea uh, of the, the objective historian uh, removed uh, from the, the subject matter uh, is, uh, is, is, is sometimes questioned. And I think this is a powerful example of how someone can uh, weave uh, a very personal, intimate uh, story uh, into a, a major uh, geopolitical uh, history of the uh, 20th century. So uh, for, for all these reasons and for many more, uh, uh, the book uh, arrested me, it made me think, uh, and I uh, uh, hope uh, that uh, Professor Khalidi's uh, remarks will uh, generate uh, as, and provoke uh, as much thought and questions. Uh, so without any further ado, I'll pass the floor to you. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. Oh, lovely. Um, it's an enormous pleasure to be back in Dublin again. Um, I spent very pleasant two months immediately after the, as Eve mentioned, immediately after pandemic restrictions were lifted here last year. Um, and it was a very, uh, very productive time for me in working on the new project that Eve mentioned. Um, I want to thank the Trinity Longroom Hub and University College Dublin um, for co-sponsoring this event. It is a pleasure to bring these two great institutions together uh, and co-sponsoring. Um, bringing things together in Ireland is not always easy. Uh, this was easy, uh, and 
I'm, I'm very happy to have been a, a facilitator of that, of that co-sponsorship. Um, I want to thank Eve, of course, um, and all of her wonderful colleagues uh, here at the Trinity Ballroom Hub. Um, they do a fantastic job, and uh, I, I, I uh, am very, very grateful for the invitation to come back and talk about this book. Um, having spent two months last year in Dublin, um, towards the tail end of your decade of remembrance of the centenaries of all the momentous events that took place in Ireland between 1913 and 1923, and having listened to many eminent Irish scholars, uh, I am fully aware of how conscious people in this country are of their own history and of how important commemoration of that history is to them and to you. Um, I, I, I would just mention to you that commemoration is also important to Palestinians. Um, just about a week ago, on the 15th of May, Palestinians marked the 75th anniversary of a set of events in 1948, which Palestinians call the Nakba, which means in English, the catastrophe or the disaster. Um, these events destroyed the largest parts of Palestinian society, utterly rendering, rending them. Um, they forced well over 750,000 people, uh, more than half of Palestine's Arab population, from their homes to which they were never allowed to return. Um, and they had an effect on nearly every single Palestinian. Some of these effects are felt until the, this very day. Um, and only last month, I discovered for the first time one of these long-term effects on me. Um, my niece in uh, Palestine, uh, three and a half weeks ago, sent me a photograph of a three-page typewritten letter that my mother, uh, who was living in New York at the time, sent to my grandparents in Jaffa in 1946. Um, my parents at that time uh, were living in New York where they had met and where my father was a graduate student at Columbia University where I now teach. Um, my mother wrote in this letter, which I think she meant to introduce her to her future in-laws. They were about to be married. They were married soon after this letter was written. Uh, in this letter, she wrote that Palestine was where she and my father wanted to live their lives. And she said, and I quote, and to bring up our children. They were married very soon afterwards. Um, and I was born two years afterwards in 1948. But my parents never uh, were able to return to Palestine. Uh, Jaffa fell to Zionist forces. 75 years ago this month, in May of 1948, my grandparents were forced to leave their home near Jaffa. Um, they were never able to return. They both died in exile. And my parents ended up having to stay in New York, where I was born, as a consequence. So I just discovered my own, <laughs> the, the personal way uh, in which I, I was, uh, I was uh, affected by one of these long-term effects of the Nakba. A minor effect, but one that I, I only realized when I saw this letter that my niece sent me. Um, the book I want to talk about today, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, which has a subtitle, A History of Separate Colonialism and Resistance. The, the UK edition, which you have here in Ireland, um, has a slightly different subtitle. Um, is a book that deals with these and a number of other crucial events. I picked six. I could have picked 60, but I picked six. 
um, in the modern history of Palestine, um, including, of course, the Nakba, uh, uh, which I'll talk about perhaps a little bit. Uh, I want to I first discuss why I wrote this book and why I wrote it in the way that it was just described with, that, with a personal angle to it. Um, I wrote it for two main reasons. The first was the obvious one. Uh, having been born and lived about half of my life in the United States, I wanted to respond to the vast range of distortions and myths and outright lies that for many decades have taken up almost the entire space for discourse uh, on Palestine in the Western world. I am sure you are all familiar with these well-worn tropes. Uh, you have heard, for example, that Israel, a country that has kept, uh, which is, that has kept uh, millions of Palestinians imprisoned under military rule for 56 years is the only democracy in the Middle East. How those two things are compatible is incomprehensible, but uh, American politicians repeat this monotonously and mindlessly uh, without cease. Um, another one of these is that Palestine is a land without a people, awaiting only a people without a land. Uh, a, rate, a related uh, a trope uh, is that uh, uh, the arrival of, of Zionist pioneers was what made the desert bloom. Um, to the eternal shame of Europeans, in my opinion, uh, one of these slanders was repeated by the EU president, Ursula van, de, van der Leyen, I think that's actually quite an appropriate name, um, <laughs> who uh, told Israelis in celebrating their independence, I quote, you have literally made the desert bloom. Um, Presumably, Ms. van der Leyen was talking of the desert, which in 1914, according to British uh, uh, consular statistics, exported from Jaffa port oranges to a value in today's currency of 44 million pounds sterling. Um, desert. Uh, this book, I hope, will help to counter this and other pernicious myths that have an incredible uh, shelf life. So that was the first reason. Uh, I wrote the book, uh, and I wrote it as I, as I did. The second reason was to respond to a, a need that my son and others constantly urged on me, a need for a concise, approachable book that the general reader could relate to. He kept saying to me, Pa, enough with the historical monographs that only your colleagues can appreciate. Enough already. Um, and so uh, I, I, I realized, after urging from him and other, other members of the family, and in fact, nothing of this sort has existed. Nothing concise, nothing meant for a more general audience has existed since Edward Said's uh, uh, Question of Palestine, which was published fully 40 years ago, actually 43 years ago, in 1979. It's, it's still worth reading, but it is obviously outdated. A lot has happened since 1979. Um, and my son would not let up, and I, 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 I finally did it. It was very, very hard. Um, it may be that older historians uh, uh, find it easier to do this than, than younger ones. Um, you look at Brodel's last works, you look at, I'm not comparing myself to any of the people I mentioned, Dubé's last works, uh, Hobsbawm's last works, and they, 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 they introduce a personal element that's entirely missing um, from their major, their major uh, uh, works. In any case, um, I believe this book may have actually found its moment. Um, it, to my pleasant surprise, it, was it has been published in 14 editions in 10 different languages uh, all over the world. I just, I just was in Spain for a very, very shockingly successful launch 
of the Spanish edition. Um, and I think that betokens a growing willingness, at least in the United States, and I think in Europe and elsewhere, to appreciate the Palestinian narrative. This is particularly the case among uh, younger people. Um, and we can actually see that from a recent poll that was taken by Gallup in February, in which uh, uh, respondents were asked whether they sympathized more with Palestinians or Israelis. And they were asked by political uh, affiliation, Democrats, Republicans, independents. Quite shockingly, among Democrats, 49% said they sympathized more with Palestinians and only 38% with Israelis. This is, frankly, for someone who's lived most of his life in the United States, this is mind-boggling. The majority political party uh, has a major, almost a majority, a plurality, that sympathizes more with Palestinians than Israelis. This could never have happened in the past. It never did happen in the past. In fact, when Gallup asked the same questions in, 19, in 2016, 23% sympathized more with the Palestinians, 53% with Israel. So something is changing. And, and I think that that's, that's definitely the case um, from my own uh, perceptions uh, of, of student attitudes uh, at universities that I, that I lecture at, and obviously at Columbia. So with this book, I was trying to speak to what I, I could perceive was an important shift in public perceptions uh, about Palestine, and to respond, as I said, to the urgings of my son, who just would not let up and tell me I had to write a book to appeal to a general audience for, for a change. So although I hope this book has a rigorous structure and a convincing argument, it is documented with 45 pages of footnotes. There's a great deal of original research there. Um, it is entirely different from the other books that I've written or edited. Um, all of my previous books were written in line with the training that I got at Yale and that I got at Oxford um, and, as, a young, as a young historian. Um, and as much as possible, obviously, they were impersonal, they were objective to the extent that I could, I could do that. Um, in this book, as has been mentioned, I used the first person, um, something I never did before. Uh, I told stories I heard from members of my family, my aunts, my uncles, my parents, um, and stories that I read uh, from other families, my wife's family in particular, stories I heard and, 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 and the autobiography of my wife's grandfather, things like that unpublished and published. Um, I described my own experiences. Um, in one chapter, my father worked uh, in the UN Secretariat for his whole career in the Political and Security Council Division, Political and Security Council Affairs Division of the UN Secretariat. And his job was to attend Security Council meetings on the Middle East. And so that was the dinner table fair when he came home from work. Uh, and sometimes he would invite me to come down to the Secretariat and sit in in the visitors gallery uh, during meetings of the Security Council, which was an education in itself. I described that in one of the chapters of this book, of the session that took place on the 5th of June, during the June War uh, of 1967. Uh, in another chapter, I described my experiences in Beirut at the beginning of the Israeli attack uh, on Beirut uh, in June of 1982. In another chapter, I described my experiences as, a, as an advisor uh, to the Palestinian delegation in Madrid and later in Washington. Um, I want to now talk a little bit about why I chose the title of the book, 100 Years War on Palestine. And I'll also talk in a minute about why I chose the subtitle. Um, <clears throat> I called what has happened in Palestine since 1914 a war on Palestine and the Palestinians 
rather than a war in Palestine. Uh, I wanted to establish clearly that this is a series of events that started with the advent of British imperialism in Palestine in 1917. With the arrival of British troops in Jerusalem, December of that year, and with the issuance of the Balfour Declaration in November of that year. That's the beginning. Before that, there was Zionism. Before that, there was Palestinian identity. Before that, there was imperialism. But they never combined in the way that they did to produce what we've had ever since then, uh, before 1917. So this really starts in 1917. This is not something that has been going on since time immemorial. This is not an age-old conflict between Jews and Arabs. There was no conflict whatsoever in any history I have ever read in Palestine between Jews and Arabs in the 18th century, the 17th century. You can go right back to the Crusades and before. This conflict did not exist before Zionism, Arab nationalism, British imperialism. They started it. It is a modern conflict uh, generated by these entirely modern uh, uh, processes of the development of nationalism and the arrival of, of, of European imperialism in Palestine in particular in 1917. Um, I also wanted to show in this book that this was not just a, a, a war between Zionism and Israel on the one hand and the Palestinians or the Palestinians and the Arabs on the other. It has always involved from 1917 onwards the massive intervention of the great powers on the side of Zionism and Israel. It always had, Zionism and later the state of Israel, the big battalions on its side. They were at war. I explain in some detail in each chapter how what I call the declarations of war are largely international decisions or decisions of European or American powers concerning Palestine, which amount to a declaration of war. And that war is waged, in some cases, the case of the 1930s, uh, by the British Army and the Royal Air Force and the British intelligence services, not the Zionists. In other words, Britain declares war and Britain wages war in the first instance. That's, that's the first chapter uh, of the book. I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. Um, these great powers were not, as they sometimes falsely portray themselves, innocent bystanders. They were never neutral. They were never honest brokers, and they were never disinterested. They were and are parties to this war on the side of Israel. And I think it's really important to understand that. Uh, finally, I wanted, with this title, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, to shatter the false impression of equivalence between colonizer and colonized, between oppressor and oppressed, and to underline the vast imbalance between the two sides. Um, quite frequently, Israel poses as a victim and argues it's sort of David fighting some Arab Goliaths. Um, if anything, the, the, the picture is reversed, and the metaphor should be quite the opposite. Um, so that's why I chose the title that I chose. I used the terms in the subtitle of Settler Colonialism and Resistance because I thought it was essential to reframe events in Palestine in terms of these realities, the reality of settler colonialism and the reality of, of, of resistance, rather than the prevailing fictions that this is a conflict between two national movements and nothing more, uh, France and Germany, you know, Zionism, Palestinian nationalism, well, you know. They're in conflict, big deal. Uh, there is, of course, a national element involved. Zionism has both a settler colonial aspect 
and a national aspect. It was and is a national movement, like many other Eastern European national movements, which is where it developed and where almost all the ideas that the founders of Zionism uh, 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 adhered to uh, came from. Um, at the same time, it's a settler colonial project. And uh, in that, it's entirely similar to Australia, as was mentioned. It's entirely similar to Canada and the United States or New Zealand. And in some ways, it's similar to other separate colonies like Algeria or Kenya or, or former Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, or South Africa. Um, for all that Zionism is and has always been in, uh, a, a, a national movement, uh, the essential dynamic in Palestine, as I argue in this book, is and has always been of a separate colonial movement that is based in and supported by Europe and the United States. Europe and the United States are the metropole of this project for all the differences between it and every other settler colonial project, from Ireland to South Africa, um, it, is, it, it is inconceivable that such a project could progress without a, a metropole. And that metropole is and has always been Europe and the United States. Um, and like other settler colonial movements, its objective was to take over a country and displace as much as possible its indigenous population. In each case, it operated differently. It's entirely different from all the others, but it shares that characteristic with them. Um, every colonial conquest, whether standard colonialism a la India and Egypt and Morocco, or settler colonialism as in Palestine or Ireland, has always engendered the resistance of the colonized. Always, everywhere, in every time. Never happened otherwise. The colonizer always and inevitably codes this res resistance in a, a, a negative and derogatory fashion whether, as frequently was the case in Ireland, a resistance was described as criminality, whether, as in India, it was described as banditry, whether, as in North Africa by the French, it was described as barbarism, or whether in Palestine it's described as terrorism. It is absolutely necessary to delegitimize the inevitable necessary resistance of the colonized by describing it in similar derogatory terms. And that's what we face. Um, in, in Palestine, and like every other colonized people, the Palestinians have resisted in a variety of ways. Um, I try and stress this to those who might be unconvinced, both by my argument about resistance and by, argument, and by my argument about settler colonialism, by citing the works of a very influential theorist of Zionism, the man who founded the revisionist trend of Zionism, and later was the ideological guide of the Likud party, the person whose ideas animated. Uh, the, the party that's dominated Israeli politics for most of the period since 1977, and which produced prime ministers like Menachem Begin, Yitzhak Shamir, Ariel Sharon, uh, Ehud Olmert, uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Benjamin Netanyahu's father was Jabotinsky's personal secretary. And, and, and Jabotinsky's ideas influenced all of them, perhaps none so much uh, as Netanyahu, the current, obviously, Prime Minister of, of Israel. In uh, uh, an article that he wrote in 1923, published in Russian, public document, uh, the Jabotinsky Foundation website gives you a very good translation from the Russian. Jabotinsky wrote the following. Every native population in the world resists colonists. Note the term colonists. Self-description by Jabotinsky, not my description. Every Native population in the world resists colonists as long as it has the slightest hope of being able to rid itself 
of the danger of being colonized. That is what the Arabs in Palestine are doing. Resisting, he would say. And what they will persist in doing as long as there remains a solitary spark of hope that they will be able to prevent, and listen to these words, the transformation of Palestine into the land of Israel. Each of those terms that, that Jabotinsky uses in that short quote has a powerful and important valence. Colonists, resistance, and transformation of Palestine into the land of Israel. Um, I think it's, 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 it's vitally important to understand that in, in, in that brief quotation, um, Jabotinsky summarizes the dynamic that was at work in Palestine. Zionism did not come to create a minority situation for Jews in yet another country. They didn't come to live with the Arabs as a minority. They came to become, they, they came, sorry, to become a dominant majority, to transform Palestine into the land of Israel. We have a government now in, in, in Jerusalem, which perhaps fortuitously has the same kind of blunt frankness that Jabotinsky had, and the kind of, I don't know how to describe it, the kind of deceptive uh, uh, shell game that uh, uh, politicians, many Israeli politicians, always uh, engaged in, concealing the fact that the objective was always to take all of the country and turn it into the land of Israel, um, has, been, has been dropped uh, by this government. And I think that that's fortunate. Um, because we see uh, exactly what's, what's going on uh, as a result. Um, I'll give you one more quote from Jabotinsky, which I think is important in a couple of ways. Uh, he said in the same, actually, article, um, he said this in a couple of places, but he said it in the same article. Again, I'm quoting, Zionist colonization can proceed and develop only under the protection of a power that is independent of the native population, behind an iron wall, which the native population cannot breach. If you wish to colonize a land in which people are already living, you must find a garrison for the land or find a benefactor who will provide a garrison on your behalf. Zionism is a colonizing venture and therefore it stands or falls on the question of armed forces. And I think the beauty of this quotation is that first of all, he, he repeats that, that it, it is absolutely necessary to use force against the native population. And secondly, um, he describes the actual situation in Palestine, which is that Britain provided that iron wall. The Zionist movement was not capable of self-defense before World War II. Um, it had developed its own capacities, its own military capacities. But when the Palestinians revolted, revolted uh, in the biggest of their many revolts during the mandate period, in 1936, uh, revolt that continued until 1939, and during which Britain lost control of large areas of the countryside and briefly some of the cities of Palestine, it was the Royal Army. It was the Royal Air Force. It was not the Haganah or other Zionist militias that put the genie back in the box. Britain uh, was constrained for a time by the, by the Munich crisis, Czechoslovak crisis, uh, Czechoslovak crisis, which led to the Munich uh, agreements, obviously, um, and couldn't send enough forces to master Palestinian resistance until uh, after the Munich agreement, at which point over 100,000 British troops plus auxiliaries recruited, trained, and armed uh, from the Jewish population, plus the Royal Air Force, plus the police, who, by the way, were founded in Palestine with veterans of the Royal Irish Constabulary, the Black and Tans, and the uh, auxiliaries. Uh, after their utility had ceased in 1922, Churchill shipped them off to form the backbone of the Palestine Gendarmerie. So it was veterans of um, atrocities here who committed atrocities there. Um, certainly the senior officers, even as late as, as 1937, 
1936-37 were veterans of uh, depredations that they carried out in Ireland. Um, I want to I want to do two more things before I conclude. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my division of the book into six chapters. I'm not going to describe each of the chapters at, at length. I may, I may be able to, to do that for a couple of them. Um, and I want to conclude by preempting what is always the question I get at the end, which is what possible solution is there to this? Uh, I don't have an answer. Um, my stock glib answer when people ask me well, what's going to happen is to say that the job description of a historian does not include predicting the future. I cannot predict the future. I will not. I don't know. Uh, I can't tell you. But I'm going to tell you how we, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you in this book how we got to where we are. And I will tell you what I think uh, might be uh, necessary and why it might take a while to get there. First, let me talk a little bit about the different chapters of this book. Um, as I mentioned, I divide it into, into what I call six different declarations of war uh, on Palestine. And as I mentioned, uh, these are quite frequently, in fact, in most cases, uh, declarations of war, uh, either by the great powers or a great power, or international instances dominated and controlled by the great powers, rather than by Israel or the Zionists. Um, and uh, uh, in, in, in many cases, uh, in one case, certainly, in the, the, the period of the mandate, that war was fought actually by by the British armed forces, uh, rather than by the Zionist uh, movement's military forces. Um, in many of the other cases, uh, that those wars were fought by Israel, but they were fought with an American green light, or with American support, and most frequently with American weapons, uh, often in, in, in violation of US law, which mandates that uh, American weapons can only be sold for defensive purposes, can only be used uh, uh, for defensive purposes. Um, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to talk a little bit about the first and maybe the second and third chapters, um, and then I'll, 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 I'll skip perhaps the last couple. The first chapter, which is the first declaration of war by, by Britain and the League of Nations on Palestine, uh, starts with the Balfour Declaration itself, and then uh, moves to the mandate for Palestine granted to Britain uh, by the League of Nations Permanent Mandates Commission. Um, and I, I, I started as a, 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 as a political historian with an unfortunate uh, uh, overemphasis on diplomatic history. Um, and so I, I, I read documents and try to read certain kinds of documents very carefully. And I think the Balfour Declaration, which is one sentence, one long sentence with multiple subordinate clauses, uh, bears close reading. Um, the Balfour Declaration said the following. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. This is a reference to the 95% of the population of Palestine, which happened to be Arab, um, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. So Balfour issued this declaration on behalf of the British cabinet. It's later incorporated verbatim into the preamble to the uh, mandate that Britain was granted by the League of Nations. Um, and its, 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 its basic principles are then uh, 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 laid out in, in great detail in the mandate. How is Britain, the mandate shows how Britain is supposed to use its best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object of establishing a national home for the Jewish people. This sentence is important for a couple of reasons. 
it talks about one group as a people with national rights. The Palestinians are never mentioned in the Balfour Declaration. The word Palestinians, the word Arabs, doesn't occur in the text. Um, they are referenced, however, in terms of civil and religious rights of what are called existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. In other words, the Palestinians do not have political or national rights. They have, they're, they're to be entitled to only civil and religious rights. And the mandate, you have to read it carefully to see to what extent the mandate document goes in enjoining Britain to carry out uh, and implement these, these principles. And how, again, the mandate document never mentions Palestinians. It talks about elected institutions for the Jewish community. It talks about control of education for the Jewish community. It talks about uh, uh, encouraging immigration uh, of, of uh, Jews to Palestine. It talks about uh, uh, encouraging land sales. It talks about many things, seven of the, of the, of the 14, 15 articles uh, of the mandate, 14, 16 articles actually, um, uh, refer to how Britain is supposed to uh, facilitate this, uh, uh, the achievement of this object. The Palestinians don't occur. They don't exist. This is a declaration of war. You were saying in a country with a 95% Arab majority, the minority is the only national group recognized by the League of Nations, by Britain, but more importantly by the League of Nations. This is a declaration of war. And when the Palestinians rise up in 1920, 1921, 1929, they're suppressed by the British. When they finally launch a nationwide revolt, the one I just mentioned, from 36 to 39, they are crushed by the British. The British kill, wound, imprison, or exile between 14 and 17% of the adult male population of Palestine, Arab adult male population. Um, uh, the a Arab adult male population of Palestine was in the realm of three, three, 350,000 uh, adult males. The British brought 100,000 troops and thousands of police and auxiliaries to master 300,000 people, 300,000 adult males, the fighting population of Palestine, the potential fighting population of Palestine. Um, in, in so doing, they carried out the war that they had declared uh, it, back in 1917. That's why I call the Balfour Declaration a declaration of war. Um, I say the same thing about UN General Assembly Resolution 181, which was passed in November, November 29th of 1947. Um, many, there have been many descriptions given of, of the partition resolution. Um, the fact that the Palestinians rejected it is constantly waved as a flag to justify the most enormous range of war crimes, like expulsion of the entire population, uh, uh, most of the population of what became Israel and other war crimes. Um, but I think it's worth looking carefully uh, at 181 and looking carefully against the background against 181, against which 181 was issued. The first element of the background of that resolution is that it's in, it is in blatant contradiction of the Charter of the United Nations. The UN Charter called for people to achieve self-determination. By the principles enunciated in the Charter of the United Nations in 1945, two years before this resolution was passed, the Palestinian overwhelming Arab, overwhelmingly Arab majority of Palestine should have been entitled to self-determination in their country. And the fact that there was a Jewish minority there should have been irrelevant um, by the principles of the UN Charter. Instead, what the majority report of a commission that was charged by the General Assembly with looking into it, which report was adopted later on by the General Assembly, what the majority report called for was a state 
in a country inhabited by a, a large Arab majority, about 65%, in which, which, would, which, would, which would encompass 55% of the territory of Palestine. In other words, 35% of the people got 55% of the land. That 35% of the people owned 7% of the land at that time. So a country, most of which was owned by Arabs and which had an overwhelming Arab majority, was divided up such that most of it, including most of the fertile land, was to be given to this minority. This is a violation of the UN Charter and many other principles. Um, not surprisingly, um, the Palestinians were not consulted. Not surprisingly, the Jewish agency, which is the, 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 the public body called for uh, in the mandate, uh, and which had quasi-governmental, quasi-diplomatic, quasi-sovereign status, uh, was consulted. They were there uh, in the General Assembly. They were there uh, 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 speaking to the, to the uh, commission, special commission, UNSCAP, which, which uh, drafted this resolution. Uh, the, the Palestinians were not invited. Um, so I describe this as not a, uh, a neutral international uh, decision by a, uh, a fair international body. I describe this as, in effect, a declaration of, of war on the Palestinians by the two powers that were the most important in pushing it through the General Assembly. These were the United States and the Soviet Union. Britain abstained on the partition resolution. The British were not the, not the, at this stage, were no longer the, the villains of the peace. The Americans and the Soviets were. Uh, they strong-armed, uh, they bullied, they bribed their allies and their clients and their, and their toadies uh, in the very small General Assembly of 1947 into voting uh, uh, by a majority uh, for this resolution. It was an American-Soviet resolution, pushed through essentially by their uh, uh, extraordinary influence at the time. Um, and both of them went on to recognize the new state of Israel and to ignore the Arab state that was to have been created uh, under the partition resolution. The, the, the Arab state, which was to uh, occupy, according to this resolution, about 44% uh, of Palestine, um, had an overwhelmingly Arab majority. The Jewish state had a tiny Jewish majority. In other words, the area, the 55% of Palestine allotted to the Jewish state, had almost as many Palestinians in it as Arabs. And from the very moment the resolution is passed, warfare breaks out between the two communities. The difference is, during the Arab revolt, the British armed and trained thousands and thousands and thousands of Zionist militiamen. They employed them on missions against Palestinian villages alongside uh, British army units for the entirety of the revolt. Meanwhile, the Palestinians were being arrested and executed for possession of arms. A hundred Palestinians are executed by military tribunals. Dozens and dozens, perhaps we don't even know the numbers of others, were shot on sight or executed after capture. Uh, so the Palestinians were having their revolt crushed, arms were being seized, their leaders were exiled or killed. The Zionists, the Zionists had thousands and thousands of their militiamen trained, armed, and organized by the British. There was a British officer by the name of Ord Wingate, who was the person in charge of creating what were called special night squads of chosen militiamen um, who served together with British squaddies in, in, in joint units in raiding Arab villages at night, uh, blowing up houses, shooting prisoners, the usual, I mean, the kinds of things that you saw. There were no creameries in Palestine. If there were, they'd have blown them up. Uh, the way that the, the, the Royal Irish Constabulary used to do, or the auxiliaries, or the, 
from the black and tans. Uh, but they blew up houses and other things. Um, Wingate uh, was the mentor, at least his theories uh, were, were crucial uh, in the development of the theories of a man named Sir Frank Kitson, who after service in Malaya and Kenya and uh, a number of other places, ends up as commander of the paratroop brigade in Belfast, uh, where uh, the unit directly under his command commits the Valley Murphy massacre and is in charge in Derry when they shoot down the civil rights demonstrators. So Kitson back to Wingate, back to Palestine. Um, that's my next part of my next book. That's not, that's not in this book. <laughs> I'm going to talk about one more chapter of this book. The, the, um, I could talk about UN Security Council Resolution 242, uh, 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 but uh, I'll, I'll just briefly mention a couple of things about that. Um, the 67 war is seen as an Israeli war on a number of Arab countries, which led to the occupation of the Golan Heights, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Gaza Strip, uh, and Sinai Peninsula. Um, it was an American-Israeli war. Uh, before the war is launched, the head of the Mossad, the man named Mayra Amit, comes to Washington. He meets with President Johnson. He meets with Secretary of Defense McNamara. He meets with Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Wheeler, Earl Wheeler, and they give him a green light. Uh, he tells them what he's going to do. They own their own, and they tell him, uh, you're going to win. If, even if the Arabs attack, you're going to smash them. Um, Johnson uses his usual colorful vocabulary in describing what's going to happen. Uh, Wheeler is much more concise. Um, and so this is not just an Israeli war with Arab countries or an Israeli occupation. This is an Israeli-American joint operation. Um, most of the weapons are British and French, but the green light is American. Uh, and the resolution, which in November of 1967 is adopted by the Security Council, is an American resolution. It's an American-Israeli resolution. Abba Iben is in Washington and in New York all the time between the 67 war, in fact, before the 67 war, and, and right up until November. And he and uh, uh, Secretary of State Rusk, Ambassador Goldberg, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, uh, and, and, and people at the State Department are the ones who really draft this document. And this is a document which gives Israel basically permission to stay in the occupied territories more or less as long as it wants. Um, that's a resolution that was passed and that mandated Israeli evacuation from these territories. As you may have noticed, they haven't evacuated, certainly not the West Bank, the Golan Heights, or Jerusalem. Um, and that was intentional. Uh, and this is another reason why I call 242 not a, not a land for peace resolution, but yet another declaration of war. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the chapters of this book is that the same sort of thing happened in 1982, before Israel invaded Lebanon. Israeli War Minister Ariel Sharon comes to Washington. He doesn't meet with the president, but he meets with the Secretary of State, General Alexander Haig. And he lays out in <coughs> great detail what Israel plans to do. It plans to kick the Syrians out of Lebanon. It plans to kick the PLO out of Lebanon. It, it plans to create a Lebanese puppet state. He doesn't use those terms, obviously. And Haig gives what Haig's uh, uh, personal secretary describes in the notes of the meeting, a green light for Israel doing this. This is another Israeli-American war. This one is fought with American weapons. So American weapons are used in violation of uh, a variety of American laws to kill 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians uh, during the 82 war, Mo almost the overwhelming majority of whom are, of course, civilians, as is always the case. Um, and I, I it, this was something I was involved in. I was living in Lebanon at the time. I described my own uh, personal uh, uh, 
reactions to what was going on, my wife's and my, my two of my children, my, my two daughters, um, uh, during the war. But I also try and describe not just the American role in greenlighting the war, but the American role after the evacuation of the PLO, which was one of the end results of this war, in failing to, to uh, honor American commitments made during the war to see to it that the Palestinian civilian populations left behind would be protected. Uh, I go in great detail into this. I use Israeli documents. I use American documents. The United States promised to protect these people. And these people were massacred. This is the Sabra and Shatina massacres, which is exactly what the Palestinians were worried about, which is why they demanded these guarantees, which they received, but which, as I show in the book, were not honored. Um, it's one of the blackest chapters in American diplomatic history, whitewashed, of course, in most histories. Um, I won't talk any more about the different chapters of the book. There are two more. You can read the book if you're really interested. Um, let me talk very briefly in conclusion. I see I'm coming to the end of my time. Um, about solutions. First of all, there's not likely to be a solution right now or in the foreseeable future. And there are three major reasons for that. Um, the first is that the political climate in Israel has been moving farther and farther to the right, even before this current particularly extreme radical government came into power. Um, that was the direction of Israeli politics really since the 1970s and with accelerated force since 2000, 2004. Um, Israeli governments have absolutely no intention of uh, allowing uh, a, a, the so-called two-state solution. They never have. and uh, This government is even farther from that uh, than any previous one. Um, some people would say, well, what about Prime Minister Rabin? Rabin uh, in 1972, came into office, and he changed Israeli policy. He first of all did something that no Israeli leader at that time, up to that time, had done, which is to recognize that the Palestinians are a people. The second thing he did was to, re to recognize that the PLO represented the Palestinians. And the third thing he did was to negotiate directly with the Palestinians. This was something that no Israeli leader before him had done. However, Rabin was categorical in refusing the idea of a Palestinian state. You need only read his last speech in the Knesset before he was assassinated by a zealot who felt he'd gone too far in doing what he'd already done to see that he had no intention of allowing the Palestinian state. Um, and that means that the, the, the talk, which we hear from American and European diplomats and politicians about a two-state solution, uh, is talk about something that has already been buried in formaldehyde since a very, very long time ago. Israel not only objects to the idea of a Palestinian state. It has worked ceaselessly since 1967 by building colonial, illegal colonial settlements in the occupied West Bank in East Jerusalem to make sure that no, no Palestinian state is possible. Um, when we went to Madrid in October of 1991, uh, there were just around 100,000, 120,000 Israeli settlers. Already it was well nigh impossible to achieve uh, uh, the, the, to, to create a, a contiguous sovereign Palestinian state. There are today over 700,000 Israeli settlers living in um, uh, occupied Arab East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank. Um, how you remove uh, as much as a tenth of the Israeli population from the occupied territories is a question I would like to ask any diplomat who, who mouths these meaningless, meaningless uh, words, two-state solution. Um, it's not possible. Uh, and Israel's movement farther and farther, not only away from that, 
but farther and farther away from recognizing that Palestinians have any rights at all in Israel in the occupied territories means that this is an enormous obstacle to be overcome before you can even have a negotiation, before you can even think of the outlines of a settlement. The second reason that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, is the Palestinian national movement is in a state of utter disarray. It's divided. It's virtually leaderless. It has absolutely no strategic vision. What do they want? One is justified in asking. And there's no answer to that question, nor the lot that sits in Gaza, nor the lot that sits in Ramallah, has strategic vision, an idea that can be communicated to anybody about what it is uh, that is their objective. What is the Palestinian objective? A two-state solution? I've already, every Palestinian knows how impossible that is. And most Israelis do too. Uh, the only people who don't seem to realize it is the, uh, the State Department and the UK Foreign Office. Uh, but anybody with any sense, excluding those two groups, obviously, uh, understands this perfectly. Um, and it is time for the Palestinians to do this, and they, there's enormous pressure from below on them to do this. And there's enormous pressure from outside forces. Almost every one of the multiple patrons of both of these two regimes, the Gaza regime and the West Bank regime, um, which is to say the United States and Israel, Iran and Turkey, Qatar and other Arab countries, Egypt and so on and so forth, all of which are the props of these two regimes, are pretty much content or with Palestinian division and fragmentation, or are actively uh, uh, fostering uh, that division. Those are problems the Palestinians have to overcome. One area of optimism has to do with the third reason why there's not going to be a solution in the, in the foreseeable future. And this has to do with the beginning of a change in the United States. There is, I, I cited the numbers from the Gallup poll at the beginning of my talk. Um, and I think these betoken the beginning of an awareness of some of the realities of Palestine and Israel on the part of the largest number of people in the majority political party. The Democrats are the majority political party by gerrymandering and a bunch of other ridiculous constitutional uh, uh, provisions. Uh, the Republican Party manages to win elections, uh, but they're, they're a minority party. Uh, and the Democrats are moving in a direction which I think gives some grounds for optimism. Um, the party leadership, the president and other luminaries uh, have, uh, are miles away from that understanding that. But at the grassroots, there is a profound understanding among young people in particular, on college campuses, uh, in the Jewish community, uh, among many liberal uh, Christian denominations in the United States, the Catholic Church actually, uh, among them. Uh, there is an understanding of some of these things. And th there is, therefore, in my view, grounds for optimism. Because if you follow my analysis that that is the metropole for this colonial settler project, powerful though Israel is, nuclear-armed though it is, terrifying its neighbors though it does, it is dependent in profound ways on the United States and Europe. And change in the United States will force change in Israel. Even if there's no overt political pressure, simply the kinds of resolutions that, for the first time in US history, are being introduced in Congress to limit the use of US money to imprison Palestinian children. There are, there are 30 odd sponsors for a measure that Barbara McCollum of, uh, of Minnesota has introduced. That's not gonna pass. But such a thing could never have been put before Congress in the past. And one of these days, that kind of resolution is gonna pass, and that'll be the day when things will begin to change. When they do, any solution that might emerge, whatever it's, Configuration, one state, two states, federal, binational, 
cantonal. I don't really care myself, and it's too early to even talk about it, in my view. Uh, it will have to be, in order to be lasting, in order to be sustainable, it will have to be predicated on justice and equality of rights. I think that's the key feature. Individual rights, human rights, civil rights, religious rights, property rights, and national rights. These two peoples really don't like each other very much. I think you all can understand how colonial reality might create some, some such feelings. Um, but they have no choice but to live together one way or another. And whatever solution emerges, it has to be based on equality of rights. The rights of one individual or one group cannot be dependent on the deprivation of the rights of another individual or another group. Thank mm -hmm. you.